0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to UnmistakableCreative.com slash 4Keys. Use the number 4, K-E-Y-S. That's UnmistakableCreative.com slash 4Keys and download your free copy.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
4: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most
0: innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at
4: unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, everybody, it's Srini, and this is episode two of the Unmistakable Creativity Hour. And in this episode, I thought I would talk a bit about the systems, the tools and workflow that I use to manage reading all the books that I read, interviewing people for the podcast and doing my own writing, which, as I joked about last week, is pretty average. But I do it enough that it occasionally leads to something good. Part of the reason I want to do this episode is because one of the things that I hear over and over again is that people either don't have enough time or they're perpetually distracted. And I think that's pretty evident from seeing how often our interviews with people like Hell Newport are wildly popular. And I want to talk about why that is. And I think all of this really comes down to poor workflow design. The way that most people work, is a bit like visiting multiple grocery stores to buy every item on their list. If you're on our email list, you might remember when we did our launch for my Maximize Your Output with Mem course, I talked about this. When I was a kid, we used to go to Houston to buy grocery stores. This is when we lived in Texas. And I absolutely hated that trip. It was the thing I dreaded most every single month. And my parents would drag us to a entire day trip from College Station to Houston. For those of you who live in Texas, you know what that drive is like. In Texas, if you didn't know, if you're in Central Texas, it literally takes an entire day just to get out of Texas. You're talking 12 hours. And when we moved to California, we drove for the entire first day just to get to El Paso, and we were still in Texas. That's how big Texas is. It's massive. And anybody who lives in Texas will tell you that. On a side note, there are also seventh graders the size of grown men in Texas. For any of you who've played high school or junior high football, you actually know this. I got the shit beat out of me on a daily basis in seventh grade football. But this is not about Texas. And for what it's worth, I love Texas. I have nothing but fond memories of the place. I think people in Texas are some of the nicest people in the world. But the point is that every time my parents would take us on this trip from from College Station to Houston... Because there were no Indian grocery stores in College Station at the time, we'd have to go to Houston, where there are tons of Indians, apparently. But for every single item on their list, we would have to go to a different grocery store or a different store. So first, we'd make a stop at some sort of grocery store where my mom would buy spices to cook all her meals for the next month. And unfortunately, in the same strip mall, there was also a sari shop. So naturally, my mom had to stop there and we would have to basically sit around waiting for her to get the salaries. The only saving grace to this whole experience was the fact that my parents would appease me with a free lunch at some really good Indian restaurant that was also in the area. For those of you who don't know, there's an area called Hillcroft in Houston, which is basically like Little India. And every month we would take this trip until we were old enough to the point where my parents would actually let me and my sister stay home by ourselves. And every month we'd take this trip. And we'd stop at one store for groceries, another for my dad to buy any electronics, another for lunch. And then at the end of the day, we would wrap this all up with a visit to the Hare Krishna temple. And this is actually the way that most people manage their workflow. They use 50 different apps to complete 100 different tasks. And then they wonder why they're overwhelmed, why they're stressed out, and why they can't focus on anything because they literally have to visit so many different places just to get things done. And I can tell you as somebody who loves tools and somebody who loves systems, I like to explore new tools. I like to try new things. But one thing I realized is that you actually end up in this situation when you have all these different tools that starts to become pretty problematic because nobody knows where anything is. Nobody has clearly defined workflows. It's all just a giant mess. And as a result, you end up wasting so much time on just moving information around, which is ridiculous. That's not the job of a knowledge worker or creative. The job of a knowledge worker or creative is to generate new knowledge, to create value by writing, creating content, whatever it is that you think you should be doing, or whatever it is that produces the most value for your company or for yourself. But the problem with that approach is that you end up just basically, like I said, wasting so much time that you don't get anything done because most of your time is spent moving information around. Like you're sifting through folders, you're sifting through emails, you're basically doing everything you can to get your work done. And ironically, you don't get anything done. And so the thing that I wanted to talk about today was my workflow for how I managed to juggle podcasts, reading books, as well as writing articles, producing the newsletter, and a couple of different things. One of the things that Cal Newport said in his uh, book, A World Without Email, which all of you should check out, is there's this distinction between workflow and work execution. And he says, knowledge work is better understood as a combination of two components, work execution and workflow. The first component, work execution, describes the act of actually executing the underlying value-producing activities of knowledge work, the programmer coding, the publicist writing the press release. It's how you generate value from attention capital. The problem is that the way that most people organize their work, they spend the bulk of it dealing with workflow and not nearly enough of it dealing with work execution. So I want to talk about how to solve this problem. And I actually want to hear from you about your challenges with this. And I know that I told you that if you, um, you went to the website and left as a voicemail, I would play it on air. And maybe you don't want me to play your voicemail well on air. But you can also submit questions to me if you go to the contact form on our website. I really would love to hear what you think about this segment. It's just, like I said, a, a new way for me to... <clears throat> synthesize all of the information that I've been processing to hash out ideas and also basically evolve the way that I think about this, because I'm far from perfect at it. But as you might imagine, because of the role I'm in, the sheer volume of information that I'm dealing with on a daily basis is really high between books, podcast guests, emails, creating course content, and all these other things. I had to come up with a workflow and layer on top of that, the fact that I have to get shit done As a person who has ADD, and this is basically like a nightmare of a situation, you might imagine that I'm just perpetually distracted, unable to do anything because of all this. So imagine basically thinking about the fact that we produce two podcast episodes a week. I read the books of every single guest that I interview, I take notes on every single book. And not only that, I write articles. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we've actually been turning interviews into articles. You can find a lot of them on our blog. And they're not just transcripts because transcripts on their own are useless, in my opinion, because you don't have any context. They're actually full-blown articles where I've been converting every single interview into an article that reads just like a blog post. Imagine if basically you had a Rolling Stone profile combined with an article on a website, like a typical blog post. And I know that you may not be a a subscriber to our newsletter, but we do. And we publish a lot of content beyond the podcast. In fact, we publish multiple blog posts every week. We have a weekly newsletter. You can sign up just by going to the Unmistakable Creative website, and you'll get all sorts of goodies there. We recently created a new ebook about the 21 lessons learned from podcast guests in 2021. It's beautifully illustrated, it has all sorts of cool quotes and all sorts of stuff. So be sure to check that out. But let's talk about this idea of workflow versus work execution. Let me just give you an example of the difference between the two. So let's say that you're writing something like a blog post. This is a simple example. And the work execution part is doing the writing of the blog post. It's basically sitting down, hammering out the paragraphs, writing shitty first drafts, shitty first sentences, and then revising it, proofreading it, and all that stuff. But then after you're done with writing it, you have to publish it. That's where it moves from being work execution to workflow. So you have to set it up to publish on WordPress. You have to add images depending on how complex your blog is. You have to make sure you add the right links. You have to make sure that you schedule it to send it to a newsletter. And you can see that all these activities start to add up. So just imagine something as simple as a blog post where you're adding links, you're adding pictures, you're sending it to your newsletter, you're distributing it via social media. All of that tends to be incredibly time consuming. And unfortunately, most people end up spending more time on that than they do on the blog post itself. And it really should be the other way around. So I wanna talk about how you actually stop wasting time on bullshit work and spend the majority of your time doing the things that not only create value, but the things that you enjoy doing, because nobody actually enjoys doing those things, they're just necessary evils. So the first thing that you wanna make sure you do is to have some sort of repeatable process, something that is documented so that you're not reinventing the wheel every time you sit down to do this thing that you've done five million times. And even if you're not a writer, you're not a blogger, whatever it is, you can apply this to anything that you do at your day job or any knowledge work process. The problem with most knowledge work workers and knowledge work organizations is they don't even have documented processes. But if you want to grow or build or scale anything, then you have to have a repeatable documented process that just works, that is simple to follow, that is basically idiot proof. There's a great line that uh, Warren Buffett has is build a company that idiots can run because eventually they will. And in this case, You're the chief idiot. In my case, I'm the chief idiot. And 90% of the time, when things go wrong, it's my fault because I had a bad process. So, just to, to segue here, like Angela, my community manager, and I, we were actually working on revising an email for a campaign for Unmistakable Sprints, which is our new condensed workshop series. And She was using one tool to edit the document. We were using another to talk about it. We are texting about it. We were communicating over, you know, via other messages over it. And what should have been a simple revision that could have been done in less than an hour ended up taking more than half a day because of the fact that we had a piss poor workflow. And finally we both agreed on what tools we would use for each task and from that point forward things just started to get a lot smoother. Let me talk first about how I managed my workflow for the podcast. One of the things that I learned from a good friend Gareth at Gap Consulting who's also been a guest on the podcast, you can actually learn more, I'll link a I'll include a link to his episode in the description, was that a lot of this stuff can be automated using a combination of Airtable, a tool called Zapier, And a few other things. And believe it or not, it's not as complex as you think. Most people think that automation involves robots and all this other shit, but just the reality is that it just involves uh, a bit of if-then statements. And honestly, a lot of this stuff is really simple to set up, and it prevents you from wasting time on bullshit work. Everything from assigning tasks to creating Zoom meetings, all this kind of stuff literally can be automated with a push of a button if you just have the data all in the right place. but The key is a process that's crystal clear, one that's easy to repeat, one that has no ambiguity in it and allows people to know exactly what they need to do if you have team members. So let's talk about the podcast. So as you might imagine, juggling... A hundred different podcast guests every year can get really complicated. And the way we've streamlined that process is with an editorial calendar that lives inside of Airtable. And for every single interview, we have an automated process that adds the calendar link to my calendar. So I know exactly when those interviews are scheduled. We have another automation that kicks in when I add the link to Riverside FM, which is what we used to record that automatically triggers an email to the guest. And then we have another automation that allows us to create a promotional kit for every guest. And all of this is done with the push of a few buttons. We just have to enter a bit of data into a spreadsheet. And then all of that happens with almost no emails and no involvement with from me or any back and forth communication. And once you get the hang of this, you start to wonder why anybody would do it any other way. It's absolutely ridiculous that people send emails back and forth just to schedule a podcast interview. And if you're a podcast host and you're doing this, I can promise you this is literally the least efficient way to manage your podcast editorial calendar. Not only that, when it comes to podcast production or media creation of any kind, frequency matters because frequency is what turns your content from a habit into an interruption. And it's hard to be consistent with your content creation if you're juggling all this bullshit constantly, you have to be able to streamline this process and eliminate all sorts of bottlenecks. So even my editor, Josh, and I almost never talk. Now, last week, there was a bit of a glitch. You might have noticed for some of you who heard the first episode, he accidentally picked the wrong file with the wrong version of the audio, but he fixed it the next day. Now, that almost never happens. I can tell you this. We publish two podcasts a week. I talk to Josh maybe once a month, if that. and. 80% of the time when something is wrong, Josh just picks an episode, if I screwed something up in the editorial calendar and just airs it. I almost never have to talk to him and the podcast airs twice a week. That's how streamlined this process is because we've built automations in, we've defined the process and we've minimized any sort of workflow that leads to context shift, that leads to unscheduled communication, all the things that Cal Newport talks about in his book The World Without Email and or A World Without Email. And if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. It will make you think completely differently about how you manage your knowledge work. And so that's really the podcast in a nutshell. You know, Even the designer uploads her album covers to Airtable. So every piece of information that we need to produce a podcast episode lives in one place. And sure, there are other tools that we need, you know, Dropbox for storing some of these files, like audio or, or any of that, but it's all linked into one place so that everybody who ha- is working on any task has exactly what they need. They don't have to go to a thousand different places. They don't have to send me a million emails, which would piss me off. So that's really key is you want repeatable processes that consolidate all the information that you need to complete a particular task for any type of workflow. So that's the podcast in a nutshell. Let's talk about writing in book notes. As I mentioned, I read the books of every single guest that I interview and I don't know about you, but I'm really interested in actually remembering what I read and <clears throat> turning that no- information into knowledge and into wisdom. Because you can read books till the until the end of time. You can listen to every podcast episode in our archive, which I hope you do. But the problem with just consuming endlessly without taking the time to synthesize it is that you get far less out of the information that you consume. So it just becomes this sort of activity that convinces you that you're being productive, that you're learning a lot. But in reality, you're actually not learning anything. You're just taking in information. It's not much different than clicking through 50 different links and browsing through articles when you don't remember anything. Yeah. As a side note, I remember a couple of years ago, my old business partner, Brian, offered a free consulting session to any of our listeners. And when one of them showed up for the call, he didn't even remember what it was about. Because we live in this world, as I said in a recent article, where information is overloaded. information overload is making us unproductive, stupid, poor, and slow. And I'll link that article up in the show notes for any of you who want to read it. But this is a big problem. We are just overwhelmed, overscheduled, overstimulated. It's no wonder we can't think clearly. And it's no wonder we have this society in which information is basically just polarizing people and dividing us. That's not a good thing. And a big part of that is reducing information overload and reducing the cognitive costs of just consuming and consuming information, most of which is irrelevant to your life. Think about how many pointless bullshit links you probably clicked on in Facebook or Twitter in the last week without ever asking yourself, why am I reading this? Is this adding any value to my life? Is this getting me any closer to what I want? Is this getting any closer to helping me accomplish my goals?
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember
4: folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone
0: and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
4: We're not deliberate about consumption, which is one of the big things that's really important. If you look, very closely at prolific creators, like my friend Julian Smith, who's been a podcast guest here. One of the things that really struck me when I interviewed him for the first time a couple years ago, and we'll have a new interview with him coming out very soon, is he told me that he didn't read blogs. He only read books and he read books that other people didn't read. And Julian had one of the most popular blogs on the internet and wrote two New York Times bestselling books and now has gone on to be a startup founder. So I think there's something to that. I think there's something to be said for not just mindlessly consuming information when it comes to books, when it comes to podcasts, when it comes to articles on the internet. Let me talk about how I take notes. If you're a fan of Cal Newport's Deep Work podcast, you've probably heard him talk a little bit about the Zettelkasten system. And he and I have been having a Friendly discussion over email about the benefits of the Zettelkasten versus the downsides. He's convinced that there's no way that this thing makes writing easier. And I think he's completely wrong. And I told him that. And hopefully he'll talk about it in one of his upcoming episodes. So, one thing I realized was that prior to discovering the Zettelkasten method and the book, How to Take Smart Notes by Sanka Ahrens, which is something every single person who is listening to this should read if you're interested in. Turning information into knowledge and wisdom, if you're not, then don't waste your time again, be mindful and deliberate about the things you choose to consume. If you have no interest in creating content or you have no interest in getting value out of your notes, don't listen to what I'm saying. In fact, this is something I always tell everybody who t- this is something I always tell everybody is that you should consider the possibility that everything I'm saying is bullshit because it might be for you. and that's the case with anybody that you hear who is an authority figure. I don't think you should take anybody's word as gospel, only guidance and consider that guidance in the context of your own life otherwise what seems like good advice on the surface actually ends up being bad advice but that aside one of the things that i found was that this method of taking notes completely <laughs> this method of taking notes completely transforms the way that you manage information and manage knowledge and you get so much more how do know the books you read. So the basic premise of the Zettelkasten method and taking smart notes is this. Prior to discovering this method, like most people, I would basically just take all the quotes inside of a book. I'd use an app called Readwise, which I still use to capture all of my highlights from a book. That's why I'm able to reference quotes from the book in the interviews when I'm talking to people. But I realized that just having a collection of notes or a collection of highlights from books wasn't particularly useful because I wasn't doing anything with them. It was just this archive of information. And one of the things that the author of the book, how to take smart Notes says is that you want to think like a writer, not an archivist. And what's the difference? An archivist stores and organizes information, which is great if you work at the library of Congress. And if you do, Congratulations, but that's not what this is about. This is about taking that information and turning it into something new. And if you're a writer, your job is to take those ideas, expand on them, make connections between other ideas, and to create something new. Because what's the point of just accumulating information if it doesn't translate into knowledge and wisdom? Nothing. It's just an activity that you confuse for an accomplishment. The premise of the Zettelkasten method is that while you're writing, you take a combination of three types of notes. The first are fleeting notes, which you just write down a notebook. And I am a big fan of notebooks. If you haven't heard our episode with Writer Carol about the bullet journal, be sure to check that out. You will get far more out of using a notebook if you understand the bullet journal method. But fleeting notes are really simple. They're just the things that occur to you while you're reading a book. And you just write down on page X, it says this, or on page 75, it says this. Then what you do is you rewrite that note in your own words. And this is actually fundamental to learning something. It's not the same as just copying or memorizing. And some of you probably heard me tell the story about how when I was at Berkeley, I took an economics class and I would just try to memorize everything and then when I would get to the midterm, they would present the concepts in a context that I'd never seen before, so my memorization was useless because I didn't actually understand anything. I just memorized a bunch of shit. That's not useful. But what happens when you rewrite things in your own words is, one, it reinforces your understanding. Two, because you're externalizing knowledge, it actually allows you to take that knowledge in new directions, expand on it, and do other things with it. In fact, I'm now using a note-taking app called Mem. I I have a course about this called Maximize Your Output. We're going to be launching a cohort version of this pretty soon, where I have 5,000 plus notes inside of this database. And I've used all of these notes. To create new content. They're basically building blocks for other notes. So you have these fleeting notes where you just write down whatever it is you're thinking based on whatever you just read with a reference to the page number, and then you rewrite that in your own words, and then you include the original source. And as a result, you end up having all of these really valuable notes inside of your database that are all rewritten in your own words. But here's where it gets even more interesting, particularly with network-based note-taking apps. Most people organize information in what Tiago Forte calls hierarchies. So let me explain the difference. Tiago has a really amazing article on his blog about tagging for personal knowledge management. But the thing is that your brain is a network. It's not a hierarchy. Tiago has this distinction that he makes between hierarchies and networks. He says a hierarchy is a system of nested groups. A standard organizational chart is a hierarchy with employees grouped into business units and departments reporting to centralized authority. Other kinds of hierarchies include government bureaucracies, biological taxonomies, and a system of menus in a software program. Hierarchies are inherently top-down in that they're designed to enable centralized control from a single privileged position. Another example of hierarchies is folders. That's how we organize information. That's how everybody organizes information. Chances are that if I went into your Dropbox, you probably have folders for everything. Folders for projects, folders for graphics, folders for personal documents. Now, the opposite is what Tiago calls a network. And he says a network, by contrast, has no correct orientation. There's no button and no top. Each individual or node in a network functions autonomously, negotiating its own relationships and coalescing into groups. Examples of networks include a flock of birds, the World Wide Web, and social ties in a neighborhood. Networks are inherently bottom-up in that the structure emerges organically from small interactions without direction from a central authority. And what's funny is that most people don't realize we can actually organize information in networks, but it's incredibly counterintuitive to do that because it goes against everything you've been taught about how to organize information for your entire life. And when you start to see this, you start to see that it's amazing what happens when you start to live in a world without folders. Just imagine a system in which everything that matters to you, your notes, your tasks, your projects, your thoughts, your insights, everything immediately accessible, interconnected to the other notes with no stress or no demand on your bandwidth to figure out where that idea came from, what it was related to, and to be able to just have access to that. So That actually has been a huge part of the change in the way that I do knowledge work now and the way that I manage everything. I have one tool where I have all my transcripts from every single podcast directly accessible. I have my book notes for that guest and all those things are linked together all because of the fact that they're inside what I call a personal knowledge network instead of a personal knowledge management system. Because the truth is, who the hell wants to manage information? That's boring as shit. Nobody wants to do that. If you're taking notes on something, it's because you want to do something with those notes. And what I propose is that we should be living in a world without folders. In fact, when I talked to the CEO of Mem, one of the things he told me was that in five years, the default will be a world without folders. People just don't know it yet. And the thing is that, as I said, this is so counterintuitive that it doesn't make a lot of sense to people when they first stumble upon some of these tools. So when you start to really understand how to organize information in a way that makes it interconnected, retrievable, easily accessible, then you start to actually be able to generate so much more value from your attention. You reduce context shifts because you're not constantly looking to some different app or one other place to go to find this and that. And it just makes everything so much easier. So that's a big thing. and and so that's been a big part of how I take notes. I capture highlights using an app called Readwise. I rewrite all my notes in my own words so that I could use them later to create new content and and then I store them in an app called mem. And as I mentioned, we have a new course called Maximize Your Output Adoc- with Mem. We'll be launching a cohort version of that course. It'll be six weeks where I'll actually teach you how to build this system. It's not going to just be, hey, listen to me talk about this for an hour. Instead, it's going to be, here are the principles. Now let's execute. So it'll be a workshop where you actually start to build a personal knowledge generation system that contains all your tasks, all your notes, all your ideas, all your projects, everything in one tool and allows you to stop wasting time context shifting and sifting through a million folders just to find the information that you're looking for. And if this didn't work for somebody like me, who has to manage a podcast, book notes, writing a blog, publishing a newsletter, and all that, chances are, it'll probably work for you. And it's not bulletproof. It's not perfect. There are times where you still have to default to other tools, but it streamlines your workflow so much and makes life so much easier. Now, I want to talk finally about a, <clears throat> another tool that I absolutely love, that has been a godsend. One thing that the author of the book, Extreme Revenue Growth, another book that you should pick up if you want to grow a company, says is that one of the things he he, he does when he goes to any startup founder, and he helps startup founders go from a making a million dollars a year to $25 million a year. Now, you might think, hey, that's not relevant to me. I'm not even making close to a million dollars a year, but you'd be surprised at how relevant it is to you. One of the first things he has them do, now imagine... This guy who was helping a CEO of a startup go from a million to $25 million is document process, literally document the repeatable process for every stupid task that you do. So here's how you publish a blog post. Here's how you send an invoice. Here's how you pay an invoice. This kind of stuff, really mundane things. And the problem with most people is that we reinvent the wheel for that kind of stuff. So This is something that I realized uh, after reading that book. If you work at a big company, you go on your first day and there's all this stuff that you have to do and all these documents that you have to fill out and all this paperwork and all all these things that just seem like bureaucratic nonsense. It turns out that bureaucratic nonsense is there for a reason. Now, imagine if you go to a place like Google or you get a job at a place like Google and on day one, the HR person is scrambling to find all the documents you need and she's reinventing the wheel every single time a new employee comes aboard. That works for probably about 25 employees. Now, imagine what happens when she has to do that. If you're hiring somebody new every single week, there's no way that Google could be as big as it is with however many employees they have. If every single time they hired somebody new, they were reinventing this process from scratch. They standardized that stuff to make it easy so that you can be done with this hiring process and get to your job. And the thing is that we need to deploy the same kinds of workflows on the way that we do our own work and our own knowledge work. And particularly when it comes to collaborating with other people. We need processes that are documented, clearly defined. And one of the tools I love is a tool called Scribe, and you can learn more about it at scribehow.com. And unlike a Loom video, which leaves all sorts of questions, what Scribe does is it literally captures a screen-by-screen shot. It literally captures every single action that you take in a series of screenshots so that when somebody decides to go take over that task, Or whenever somebody needs to complete that task, they know exactly what to do. They know what buttons to push, what text to enter, how to add links, whatever it is you want them to do. And yes, there are some things that are going to be all irrelevant or not generalized, but it streamlines the process of having people complete their tasks. What they say is that you can share how to in seconds and automatically generate step by step guides for any task. And it's amazing how... Easy, that works, because then you're going to spend less time explaining and more time doing, which is something they say on their website. And I can tell you firsthand, this does wonders for you. My favorite part of their tagline, where at the end of the landing page, they say, can you show me how to do that again? Said no scribe user ever, which means you can create step-by-step guides that people actually use. And once I saw how well this worked, we created scribes for everything from how to publish a blog post to how to schedule a newsletter. And you'd be amazed at how much time it saves you when people are constantly not asking you how to do something that everybody has done a thousand times. This would be really important to have some sort of standardized workflow that makes it easy to manage all this stuff. Because the only way to actually increase your productivity and actually Forget increasing productivity because that's not the point. Like, as April Rin said when we had her here, productivity for its own sake is pointless. You want to get important things done, not get a bunch of tasks crossed off your list, but just basically get really what's important done. And the key to getting the most important high value tasks done in your life is a predefined workflow that is repeatable, that's clear, that makes it easy for every single person in an organization to understand what they need to do when they need to do it, and you leave how they do it up to them, believe it or not. You just want them to follow a process that's standardized. So anyways, that basically is the second installment of the Unmistakable Creativity Hour. We'll probably start to get this much more produced, or if you like it this way, and if you like just hearing me talk and saying what's on my mind, let me know. As I said last week, I really would love to hear from you, and if you don't want me to play your voice on air, that's totally fine. I can actually... You can just read something you send in, but feel free to engage because this really is about you. I'm talking right now. I'd really like to hear from you because ultimately this segment is about you and helping you solve whatever challenges you're wrestling with. And as much as I like brain dumping everything that I have on my mind with you, I want to actually help you. I want to have you come on air if you're daring enough. And if you don't want to send me a voice message, I understand. If you don't want me to play your voice on air. That's totally cool. Some people are shy. But if you're not, then leave us a voice message at podcast.unmistakablecreative.com. There's a little tab on the side that allows you to leave us a voice message. Otherwise, just write in. There's a contact form on our website, and I will answer any questions that you have. And I want to make sure that we address those. Anyways, with that, this is the second episode of the Unmistakable Creativity Hour. All the things that I've mentioned in this episode, I will link in the show notes below. And if you're up for joining me for an episode of the Unmistakable Creativity Hour live, let me know. We'll do it with a glass of wine because I don't do this in the middle of the day. I do this. I found that I'm much better at just sharing what's on my mind after a couple of glasses of wine. So we'll do this with some wine. And if that's not your thing, we'll find some other vice, and we'll record live. I'd love to hear from some of you, talk to you, just have a discussion and learn what you're up to because up until now, the show is focused entirely on podcast guests but every one of you is up to something interesting in the world. And everybody has a story worth telling. And I want to hear it. I want to hear about you. So if you're up for it. I'd love to have you jam with me on the happy hour or the creative. Clearly you can see that I've already started drinking, but I'd love to have you join me for the unmistakable creativity hour and hear about what you're working on. And if you didn't hear last week and you happen to have an Oculus, I really would love to host a virtual happy hour with a couple other people have an Oculus because all I've gotten to do inside so far is to talk to random weirdos on the internet. And as enjoyable as that is, let's be honest, it's really not that enjoyable. You never know who you're gonna meet, but there's some really cool things we can do. So anyways, if you're up for that, let me know, shoot me an email, fill out our contact form. And as always, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the
0: Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive,